My name is Andrew Kays, and I'm the pastor at Emmanuel Evangelical Lutheran Church of Paynes Point. That's in rural Oregon, Illinois. You're about to hear me preach. Now, this episode was recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, during which time public worship has been disrupted. We don't have it every Sunday. Therefore, all sermons have been recorded ahead of time to make them available online. Unless otherwise noted, all scripture is NRSV, used under the gratis policy of the copyright holder, the National Council of Churches. Our first reading comes from the 23rd chapter of Jeremiah. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who shepherd my people, it is you who have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. So I will attend to you for your evil doings, says the Lord. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the lands where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply." I will raise up shepherds over them who will shepherd them, and they shall not fear any longer or be dismayed, nor shall any be missing, says the Lord. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as a king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Here ends the reading. The Holy Gospel, according to St. Luke, the 23rd chapter. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing, and the people stood by watching. But the leader scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked Jesus, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied, Truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. This is the gospel of our Lord. Grace and peace to you, sisters and brothers in Christ. Reign of Christ Sunday, another updated name for the times. You might have heard it as Christ the King Sunday. And what that means is we're finishing off the church year which, if you recall, the church year is a cycle in which we tell the story of Jesus over and over. So it's only fitting that we end the story where we're at here, 
anticipating the next time Christ will act, Christ's future return, Christ's earthly everlasting reign over all the earth. And I've mentioned a few times now how we intermingle the themes of this transition, so it's not quite a hard stop and a hard start again. Instead, as we go into the new church year, we end and begin again with anticipation. Anticipation of judgment and kingship and anticipation in hope, hope for a Messiah, hope for a child born in a manger, that sort of thing. And we do this often enough, taking these symbolic loop-de-loops, going back across different events and ideas, different prophetic images, so the end of the world, Christ's return, our own deaths, judgment, eternity, all somehow intermingling with other big events like Christ's birth, ministry, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. And how can those all be connected as such? Well, it's because the same God is motivated in the same sort of ways to act through those big world-shattering sorts of events. So certain threads are bound to run between them, and each of those events might inform how we think of the others. Well, if that weren't a big enough set of ideas to try to hold in our mind at once, this week, to finish out the year of Luke, we're going to intermingle another set of themes. Now, I'm going to allude to the two readings that we'll have uh, in person. (laughs) So you can check the description or the show notes or what have you to read those over yourself if you would like to. Uh, But I think you'll probably get the point just from the little bit I'll say here. But the reading we did have, Jeremiah. Jeremiah reminds us how throughout the Old Testament, when you read about shepherds, think kings. David starts as a shepherd, becomes the greatest king of Israel. Good kings, anyway, are like shepherds. And so a good shepherd is another rung above that. Jesus, of course, called himself the good shepherd. And that imagery is pervasive in our culture. More than most anything else, save perhaps for the crucifixion, Jesus is most often depicted in the midst of sheep. Shepherds feed, guide, protect, but a bad shepherd would be reckless, indifferent, maybe more worried about himself than the sheep, and so on. So Jeremiah connects those images more directly than any other author in the Old Testament. The shepherds of the people of God are like kings, right? So Jeremiah prophesies that a coming king would treat Judah and Israel with justice such that they would thrive. We Christians, of course, interpret this as about Jesus, Christ the King. Now that psalm reading we skipped here, it reminded us that God's word is no small thing. In fact, the word they use there is desolation. It's like the whole world melts away when God speaks. So when God acts, stuff as big as natural disasters just seem like nothing. They take a back seat. The events which God sets in motion, where God is most clearly acting, looking back throughout human history, they're huge. Then the Colossians reading reminded us, and you may recall this line, that the incarnate God is the image of the invisible God. That is to say, Jesus made visible what was otherwise invisible. God being born in the flesh in Jesus means we who are bound to the earth could see who God really was, or at least see God in a bigger, deeper, more expansive, revelatory, meaningful way than ever before. A shepherd who is above shepherds, who are above kings, even the good ones, world-melting, creation-rattling, 
desolations that end war with a mere word, the revelation of God in a way that surpasses anything that came before or since. Christ the King. Then from Luke, the crucifixion. Jesus upon the cross. At the start of our church year, this past year, almost 12 months ago here, we heard from Elizabeth and Mary especially about how the coming Messiah would lay flat our human inequalities. The rich and the haughty and powerful would be brought down. The sick, the powerless, the excluded would be lifted up, brought into the fold, included. We then heard Jesus preach over these 20-some chapters in Luke that this is exactly the message he brought too. That's what the kingdom looks like. That's what the world looks like. That's the kind of world his followers will try to bring about here and now. From lost coins to prodigal sons to strangers befallen by robbers on the side of the road, Jesus asks over and over, whom do you see? Who do you notice? When the world takes little note of those who are sick and powerless, excluded, abused, and so on, when the world is ready to forget them, who do you, follower of Christ, remember? Because if they were under the boot of some tyrant or the victim of some injustice or the fallen hero of some tragedy, then God has a special mind for them. God has a particular eye on them and promises to redeem them. So Jesus laid out a choice for his followers. You can have that same mind for your neighbors in need or not. You can risk everything you know, have, and love, your own life, for the sake of those whom the world would sooner leave behind to pick up your cross and follow him. Or you can stay home and hope for the best. Then Jesus what, puts his money where his mouth is. He counts himself among the guilty, though he's innocent. Counts himself among the powerless, though he's king the soon-to-be-forgotten there on his left and his right. We don't even get their names. He allows himself to be put on the cross, humiliated, abandoned, tortured, and killed. The king who puts all other kings to shame, the God who moves mountains with a mere word, the greatest revelation of all time, and here he is, the pinnacle of injustice and shame, willfully counted among the lowest of the low. What comes next in the story will prove his point in history and undercut any human authority. He will rise from the grave. Not even death can stop him. Nothing they could do would stop him. And what comes next in our story will prove his point in eternity and undercut any opposing force at all. Going beyond just human forces, we're undercutting chaos, sin, the devil. He will overcome them all just as he overcame humiliation and death and reign for eternity. All those themes intermingling to see that the one who counts himself among the lowest of the low is worthy to be king over all. Where then are we? We're getting ready for the holiday season to, to give thanks, to celebrate the Christmas season and bring in the new year. But this collection of biblical themes, which has spanned thousands of years, put together on display and intention this morning reminds us 
what our God is up to is bigger than what's before us. We are called to our work. We have our purpose. And there's lots of good for us to do in the world here now, today, this season, in the coming year, and so on. And yet, on some level, if we seek to find ourselves in these stories, well, we're not bad kings, we're not scattered sheep, we're not earth movers, and we're not revelations. In four texts, the only place I might find myself is as that of a thief strung up beside Jesus, not because of some injustice, but because that's what sinners deserve. And my only role to play in those earth-melting, gigantic moments in history and eternity is to humbly ask, Jesus, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. The hope that is ours that finishes off this story, as we've told it once again going through this last year, is Jesus' last line, and it's as true for you now as it was when he first said it there. Truly, I tell you today, you will be with him in paradise. Amen. Thanks for listening. I pray God spoke to you in some way. A quick note at the end here, which you can skip if you've heard it before. The audio of my sermons does not always include proper citations. While I do some self-study and lean on my seminary education, I also lean on my colleagues with whom we have a regular text study. I also use Luther Seminary's Working Preacher website and their podcast, Sermon Brainwave. Some credit is due to at least one of those sources. Wherever you are, whenever you hear this, please be well. Take care of yourself and each other, and have a great rest of the week.